This morning is a little bit um, challenging in some ways. If you are the parent of a very young child, you may be thinking, well, I don't know if that child needs to stay in here for this this morning. I'll leave that decision up to you, but we are going to discuss some things that are a little bit challenging or controversial in some ways. Just be aware of that. Because I'm talking about specifically same-sex attraction this morning. And I was originally going to discuss this differently. I was going to talk about gender identification and sexual orientation, transgenderism, throw it all together into one sermon. I decided I just couldn't do it. It was more than I could treat at one time for sure. And so I've decided not to do both of those today, but I am going to talk specifically about same-sex attraction. And that doesn't mean I don't have opinions about transgenderism and many of the all in in one uh, lesson for sure. I'm also going to be sticking close to a manuscript today. And that makes listening a little bit more challenging for you. But the fact is, I want to be pretty careful about what I say and not just talk off the top of my head. Um, I don't have that much on the top of my head. The depth of what's there isn't very deep. And so if I was to attempt to just do that off the top of my head, it just probably wouldn't work anyway. So we, so we have a very short time to discuss what we need to discuss about homosexuality, which is unfortunate. Because the discussion needs so much more time. But in many ways, that's okay. And it's okay because we can't begin to cover it all today no matter what we do. The subject can't be treated in one sermon. It's, it's just too inadequate for that. Maybe a series in the future, I don't know. But for this sermon series right now, we're just going to do this morning. It's challenging. It's lengthy. And the dialogue has to continue. Everyone is on a spectrum, it seems to me. There's all kinds of viewpoints regarding homosexual behavior, and it needs to be open to dialogue. No matter our perspectives, we can't just discount the perspective of others, acting as though we have pure hearts, but they don't. In fact, we can't act as though we have a corner on the truth, but they never could have it. That their opinions about the will of God in such matters deserve no attention from us. And so I would say this. We need to give others the benefit of the doubt when it comes to to the intention of their hearts. For example, it's possible that you'll disagree with me today. But I'm wondering if in the midst of disagreeing with me today, you can also give me the benefit of the doubt as to the intentions of my heart. Maybe, just maybe, I want more than anything to do the will of God. Whatever I think that is, without caring near as much about where the church has stood in the past on these matters as I do about simply serving God. And in fact, I would say this is the case, that I'm actually heartbroken at the ramifications of the very perspectives that I hold true. Genuinely loving with profound love those who disagree with me. And I don't know if that's where you can be today, but I hope that it is, because I think we all need ultimately to be there. In fact, I'm wondering if I can give to those who take a position that is not at all the traditional position, typically held by the church, the benefit of the doubt. Can I trust that they are motivated by love, that they are truly truth seekers, that they want to treat others with respect, and that they generally want to establish and follow what they think this about them, even though I think their perspectives on such matters are not in harmony with God's will? And can they think the same of me? Can we stand together in those places, actually quite opposed to each other? 
And yet, nonetheless, looking at each other with respect and love and concern and care. So now let me frame all of this, uh, this discussion in, uh, in one specific kind of way. I think there are three typical opinions. And my guess is that you hold an opinion that is in line with one of these three. You may not, but I'm guessing that this is the case. First, many of us are convinced that any departure from traditional values on these issues is sinful against biblical teaching and against the will of God. In fact, I would guess that most of us probably, especially those of us who are older, stand there. That's a place where we would be, I would expect. Probably you're going to be at the end of the sermon as well. Secondly, you could stand in this place. That we're convinced that those who hold traditional biblical interpretations regarding homosexual behavior are actually wrong in the ways they have interpreted the biblical texts that address such issues. So it's very possible. I'm not a perfect interpreter. It's possible that I could look at a biblical text and I could actually interpret it wrongly. And there's a lot of people who would say that that's exactly what's been done with, homosexu- uh, with the text on homosexuality. So some of you could be there. And then thirdly, you could, be, you could be convinced that despite what the Bible says is God's will on such matters, such teaching is actually time-bound. It made sense that biblical writers would believe and teach the things they did because they lived in the first century, but now they would have different opinions, and so would we. So if Paul was living today, Paul would write differently. In fact, if Jesus was living today, Jesus himself would think differently because the culture would put us in a completely different position. Well, we have all these different opinions We're at different places today. What do we do now since we know that there are among us differences of opinion? And what I've decided to do is quickly to go through the biblical passages, not really go through them so much, as to go through my impression of that teaching and God's will about this particular subject. So I'll tell you what I think about biblical teaching on these matters, but the fact is I'm not sure what I think the biblical teaching is all, uh, what I think it is, is actually all that relevant. Largely because most of you already have predicted what I think and obviously have know what you think. And so I can say some things today, even about the biblical text, but I'm not convinced that I'm going to do much changing of minds today. I don't know that we're going to convince each other very much today. Uh, you're not going to probably convince me of your position afterwards when you come up afterwards and say to me, I totally disagree with you. And I'm not sure that I'm going to convince you so much today. And so my opinion is not all that relevant because some of you don't take what I take to be authority in the first place. Some of you aren't all that convinced that what the Bible says or what the preachers say says, or what the elders say, or what the church says, or what tradition says, is really the foundation for determining these things. The foundations you hold for deciding what is true are not these foundations. In fact, I would say, isn't that an awful lot of the problem? Some of us think that the biblical teaching is in sync with God's will for humankind on these matters, and some of us don't. Personally, I do think biblical teaching represents God's will regarding same-sex activity, but I know that there are people sitting in the room today who don't think that. So, for the record, regarding biblical teachings on this subject, my opinion is that for the most part, the traditional positions on and the interpretation of the biblical text are the most defensible, actually by, I would say, a pretty good margin. I haven't read or heard anything or received some revelation from God that makes me think otherwise. 
And I've done my share of reading on the subject. I'm also willing to change my perspective if I think I should make changes. And so there, doctrinal changed my view, some rather significant things. And it's because I looked at Scripture and I thought to myself, I'm not sure that the Scriptures teach what I used to think they taught. And I changed my perspective. And on this subject, I'm also open to doing that. If someone was to show me texts in the Scriptures or convince me that the texts that I've read already and their interpretation, that I'm just out to lunch on those, if someone could do that, honestly, I think I would be very open to change. Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I'm not there yet. So I think that Jesus actually held to and supported the Old Testament laws concerning the prohibition of homosexual behavior. Laws like Leviticus 18.22 and chapter 20, verse 13 seem to me to be stated fairly clearly. Ultimately, for those who trust in Jesus, he will forgive such sinfulness and he forgives all the rest of the sinfulness of those who trust him. But I don't know the case where Jesus went against Hebrew moral law, except where he actually strengthened it, thereby ultimately fulfilling it. And I also don't think that Paul, as a Jewish teacher, a Pharisee, and as a follower of Christ, was out of line with that Old Testament teaching when he was teaching in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, or 1 Corinthians 6, 9, or 1 Timothy 1, 10. And when he was teaching that homosexual behavior is actually unacceptable to God. Of these passages, I would say that Romans 1, 18 is the strongest basis for a position against practicing homosexual behavior. I also think that Jesus upheld the Old Testament's view of marriage and that the Old Testament's view of a created order in which there are male and female who come together to form monogamous relationships, marital unions, is in fact God's will. There's nothing in the Bible that I can find that points in any way toward Jesus or another writer accepting monogamous homosexual relationships, whether lovingly centered or not, and I don't think that's because such relationships just weren't known in the ancient world. I think that Jesus would have known that those relationships existed. I think Paul knew that as well. And still, there isn't anything in Scripture, I think, that counters all of that. But I would say that the best reading of the biblical text is that Jesus didn't accept those relationships as legitimate. I think there is some question about the exact meaning of some words in these texts. In fact, like if you tur- we won't do this now, but if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, which is one of the text in the New Testament that talks about homosexuality, or 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, those really are not great texts to go to in terms of this. Uh, and, and they're sometimes very difficult to translate. Like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is very difficult to translate, mainly because of the words that are used there and our lack of understanding about what those words mean. I would say the exact opposite is true about Romans chapter 1, 27 of Romans 1, and, and there are lots of translations that do this. I think they translate the words there pretty clearly that the texts are not hard to understand. It's just not that difficult. In fact, it's so easy that even I could translate Romans chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. So what you have right now is the, what I call this? The KCSV. This is the Kelly Carter Standard Version of this New Testament, translated from the original Greek. And this is what I think it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with passion for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty 
for their errors. So I, I think that is about as clear a text in Scripture as there is with reference to the specific issue of homosexual behavior. And by the way, I haven't said anything about same-sex attraction. I'm really talking about homosexual behavior when I read this and talk about it. Well, if that's the case, if we're talking about these texts being relatively clear, then we have some big questions to ask. And the questions I want to ask this morning and finish up with answering are these. And, and again, I'm assuming, like I've communicated now what my opinion is about the text. I think the Bible teaches the traditional position. But here are some questions. What God thinks of those who are same-sex attracted, and I'm, I, I'm saying questions, but I'm saying these are issues. And how those who hold the traditional position need to respond to those who are same-sex attracted. Now I'm using that word. And then, what God thinks of those who act on their homosexuality and how those who hold the traditional position needs to respond to those who do. And I do see these as two different issues, as you can tell by the fact that I put them one and two. I think there's a difference between being same-sex attracted and acting on your homosexuality. In the same way that there's a difference between anyone who is attempt, who's tempted to do something of which God disapproves and those who actually do that of which God disapproves. So, briefly, first, what does God think of those who are same-sex attracted? And here's what I think. I think he loves them. I think he wants to be in relationship with them. I think he wants them to give their lives to him in loving service to him. And he wants them not to sin. Any different at all than how God thinks of the rest of us when it comes to the temptations that we experience, to the ways in which we could be out of line with God's will. We are tempted to sin all of the time. How does God think of us in the midst of being tempted like this? And then what about when we do actually occasionally do this? And I'm still just talking about same-sex attracted for those who sometimes would fall because all of us are tempted by various things and we end up following falling. I think that Jesus would say, just like he said to the woman who was caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so my sense is that Jesus looks at those who are same-sex attracted, and he loves them. He loves them dearly. He wants to be in relationship with them. He calls to them with all of his heart and with all of his voice as the Son of God and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. I think that's what he wants for them. In the same way that he wants that for all of us. And that means that we have to shape our attitudes, our perspectives, I think in line with what Jesus' perspectives and attitudes would be. Do I think that Jesus was in line with the Old Testament teaching when it came to the actual carrying out of homosexuality. I would say that he is. But Jesus also is totally in line with his will for humankind from the beginning that they be in fellowship with him and he longs to be in fellowship with those who are same-sex attracted. He wants them so badly to be his children and to serve him. He wants to forgive them when they make mistakes. He wants to send his spirit to be in them and unite them to him. So that's the first kind of set of questions and answer to those. 
What should be our approach given God's attitude towards same-sex attraction then? A heterosexual Christian should ask, how do we love, accept, assist, and equip those who find themselves same-sex attracted? Which is so much different than the way that the church has sometimes responded to this whole issue to be a church. And we want to be a people, to be Christians, who embrace those who are same-sex attracted, and not just as those who pity another, but as those who experience in ourselves our own struggles with being all that God wants us to be. Uh, I was talking with someone this week, someone who doesn't wrestle with the issue of being gay or not, but is a church leader, not in our church, and who deals with this kind of issue all the time. And I said, so what do you think? And after we talked a bit, he said, Kelly, I agree with you. God wants homosexuals to be in our churches. He wants us to love them just the way he does, like we love ourselves. I think that's what God wants. Well, what does God think of those who act on their homosexuality? Exactly the same. He loves them. He wants them to be in relationship with Him. He wants them to give their lives to Him in loving service to Him. And He wants them not to sin. And so He thinks about those who act on their homosexuality pretty much the way He thinks about all of us who act on our sinfulness. He wants to bless them. He wants them to be His children. He wants to be in relationship with them. And he wants so badly to be, then, our approach, given God's attitude toward those who act on their homosexuality. A heterosexual Christian should ask the question, how do we love? Accept as fellow strugglers. Assist and equip those who act on their homosexuality. And again, that's so much different than the way that we have typically responded. We haven't always responded well. But God wants us to be loving he wants us to be gracious. He wants us to assist. He wants us to minister. We want to be a church. And we want to be people, to be Christians, who embrace those who act on their homosexuality, helping them to know what is sin and to leave sin behind for a life that consistently serves the Lord. And so in that sense, again, it's not much different. And I agree I've said from the beginning here today, and I'm going to continue to say, I would guess for a while, that to act on our homosexual impulses is actually sinful. I think it's out of line with God's will. But the fact is, is that that's sometimes what I do. I'm a person who sometimes acts on impulses that I have that are ungodly, and God calls me in response to my temptation to be pure. I think he wants all of us to be pure. And he forgives us when we aren't, as we come to him and offer ourselves to him. When it comes to our response, sometimes we think it's the church's role to just stand against something. But if you think about it, that's what the Pharisees were doing that got them into so much trouble with Jesus. They were against touching lepers. They were against adulterers. 
They were against the prostitutes. They viewed blind people as victims of their own sinfulness, unless it was their parents, of course, who were the ones who sinned. They were against hanging out with the drunkards. They were against eating with the Roman collaborators. They were against healing people because Jesus sometimes did that on the Sabbath. And I'm not interested in being a Pharisee. As opposed to being like Jesus and treating people the way that Jesus did. We can't just be the people who are against homosexual behavior. And that's the way the world has so often perceived who we are, and it's a mistake. So on the one hand, we shouldn't just belittle the issue or those who act on their homosexuality by just caving in. And that's what I think would happen. Like if we just caved on this issue, if we just said, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, it doesn't matter what we think God says, we just need to do what we think is going to put us in line with our contemporary culture, I think we would be belittling them. We would be treating their views as being so inconsequential that we can just accept those views without hardly taking them seriously. And I think that would be disrespectful and mocking. Nor should we disagree in a way that belittles those who disagree with us as if they could not care less about what God thinks or what the Bible teaches on such issues. That's not the way we treat sinful people. Because we are sinful people. And we shouldn't treat them that way any more than we would treat ourselves that way. A young person I talked to recently had uh, what his approach to these issues ask. Sorry, a young person and I talked recently about what his approach to these issues should be. Because in his life, he was faced with these at school. And so he wanted to have coffee and sit down and say, Kelly, I don't know what to do. I've got people around me who are homosexual, and I'm a Christian, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to treat them. I need some guidance. And here is what I told him. I said, we must recognize our own place as the greatest of sinners, as the one most out of line with God's will for our lives. And only when we view ourselves as the worst of sinners of all, are we in a position to deal well with others who wrestle with sin? When we see ourselves in that way, as the chiefest of sinners, it becomes better, if we can't do anything else, to just wander away from the conversation, at the very least leaving on the ground the stones that we otherwise may choose to throw at those we view as sinners. If you can't do anything else, then just walk away and leave the stones on the ground. But better than that would be to embrace another, love another, treat another the way that Jesus would treat another. So I don't think that we should simply condone and accept homosexual behavior. We're to respond to those who sin in this way just like we respond to all other sins with grace and forgiveness and love and mutual understanding and accepting, acceptance, knowing that we are the greatest sinners of all. Even as we pray and even as we have high hopes and encourage all who sin to go and sin no more. 
And so we need to be intentional about this. We need to intentionally befriend. Intentionally seek out healing relationships with those who act on their homosexuality. So that they can help us, in turn, with our own sinfulness. And our own devotion to God. So that they're helping us, even as we help them. Well, is that an accommodation toward homosexuality, a compromise with what the church has historically held sinful? I don't think so. Although I am now cognizant of the fact that gender issues can arise for people from very, very early on, even if it's not actually part of their genetic composition, we need to see that this is definitely something that people from the beginning have wrestled with. I don't believe, actually, that there's a gay gene. At least genetic science has not shown that there is, as far as I can tell. I do think that there are other genetic components that probably make people some, some people more inclined and ready for this than others. What I'm saying is that when I say that it's there that, people are who are actually, that there are people who are actually same-sex attracted, not because they want to be or have it forced on them by abuse or as the result of sinfulness around them, but because that's what they genuinely feel about themselves, and many of them have this for all their lives. And so there are people who all their lives have felt exactly this way. And I'll say, by the way, that one of the features of our time, our culture, is that young people, as a feature of our culture, tend to self-identify based on their personal feelings and experiences rather than external factors we used to tell, uh, use for self-identification. You know, it was pretty obvious, or at least it used to be, who was a girl and who was a boy. It's not that way any longer. People don't easily make those decisions. In fact, it's so common for people now to base who they are absolutely in how they feel about themselves rather than how others on the outside are looking at them. I want you to know, too, that if you're younger and if you are on a different side of this position than me, I want you to know how difficult it is for those of my, me, uh, of my generation to get you. Our categories are so different from yours. It's not just a matter of us disagreeing on some ethical and moral questions or some interpretations of biblical texts. It's not just that I'm old and cantankerous and that I have a judgmental heart. It's a matter of seeing the world through different lenses. We actually think completely differently from you and cannot understand the ways in which you think about the world. That's just the truth. The only thing I can compare it to is the difficulty that you have in getting us. Because you don't think the way that we do. Your criteria for what's true are often completely different than what mine are. And so it's no wonder that we don't just disagree, but that we talk right past each other, barely able to understand where the other is coming from. In the midst of that, people like me are trying to give you the benefit of the doubt. If we weren't, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If we didn't love you, we wouldn't be talking. But in the same way, we'd like to be given the benefit of the doubt because we're trying to do our best in loving God and loving people. And I'll just tell you that at 61 almost, it's not easy to do that. It's not easy to change. 
It's not easy to have a new perspective. It's not easy to think in completely different ways than you've ever thought before in your life. And so I need your grace. I need your mercy and forgiveness because I'm wrestling with this. The last thing I want to do here is I just want to say that this is not going to be the end of the conversation. I said in the beginning, uh, we can't do it all in one sermon for sure. And so I want to offer the opportunity for more dialogue. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to take place yet. I'm, I'm wondering if an online discussion wouldn't work here two weeks from now, three weeks from now. I don't know when. Listen for more of that. For right now, I hope that you have heard and listened to someone who loves all of you, who hopes that he's loved by all of you, who wants to love God more than anything else and follow his will, even though for me, it can be hard. And sometimes I fail. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you're with us today. We believe that your Holy Spirit is right here, part of what we're being and doing. And we want more than anything to honor you. God, you know how limited I am in my own wisdom. You know how short-sighted I can be. You know how lazy I can be. You know how easily I can misunderstand. But I do want to know the truth. I do want to seek you. I want to honor you, know you, love your word, give my life to you. And God, I want the same for everyone here. That we as a church, young and old, part of a different culture than my own even, God, I'd pray that we would be able to look at all of these issues, looking for your guidance and your presence and your spirit to be with us as we serve and love you. It's through Christ that we pray. I'm so glad to be part of Generation X because nobody even notices us anymore. <laughs> it's all baby boomers and millennials. So. <laughs> um, I was thinking about calling for applause. I think instead we should give each other a lot of hugs. You should hug that preacher today. Because uh, you may not agree with him. And if you, he and I talked or you and I talked, you might not agree with me. It takes a lot of courage to step out into that space and try to make room in this room for us to be together. And that's a big deal. <laughs>